Hey everybody, I'm Eric Tornberg, co-founder, partner, Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is an episode of Venture Stories, where we deep dive on topics relating to tech and business with some of the world's leading experts. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Venture Stories by Village Global. I have a repeat guest on today. It is Trent McConaughey. Trent, how's it going? Very well, thanks. Awesome. How are you doing? Doing fantastic. Thank you for coming on. So I have a bunch I want to get into, but first I thought I could start with one of your posts. I believe this is the most, your most recent post where you talked about Ocean's mission and you outline a little bit, a little bit of history behind Internet 1.0. At you know, two point and three point Can you outline a little bit about what you were trying to do in that post to set up, you know, what Ocean's goals are? You were giving a little bit of the backstory of how we got to where we are. Uh, sure. So if you look at the history of the web, web one point two point and three point and even before that, you know, ARPANET and Internet. ARPANET and Internet was actually built largely by sort of with this hacker ethos of open, decentralized, all of this. Part of it was funded by the DoD, worried about you know, nuclear military strikes, but basically it was a sort of combination of some funding, but st- still the hacker ethos of openness and so on. And that ethos led into um, Web 1. So throughout Web 1, you know, that's when sort of the internet went mainstream, you know, first invented in 89, started to um, get out into the public in 91, 92, 93, via, you know, easy to use browsers, all this. And with that, the sort of ethos went, um, continued of, of openness, of sharing big promises, all that. And that's a lot about what Web 1.0 was all about. And it reflected, right? We had things like Internet Archive, we still do, of course, and Wikipedia, and sort of these things that are as democratic as they could possibly be almost towards openness, sharing, community, all of that. And then uh, of, uh, along came Web 2, and this was much more about social and all this. And the intention was, was always really great, you know, like, let's connect people much more and all of this. But the the underlying incentives, which is sell ads, turned out to misalign with the goals of sort of democratic ideals. In order to sell um, ads, you um, the, the way to do it is to have better and better targeted ads. And to do that, you need more and more data about the people that you're targeting. So there sort of became this feedback cycle, the data network effect, whatever you want to call it, of learning more and more and more about consumers in order to sell them more and more ads. And that's kind of against the ideals of, of privacy and and sort of some of the institutions that were, have been building these are, it's really kind of, you know, there there's a tension between the users and the people trying to make money. And at the heart of it all is incentives. You know, to quote Charlie Munger, show me the incentive and I will show you the outcome. And that's kind of what's been happening. So the web now is a lot more siloed than it was 15 years ago. And, and you know, this is kind of worrisome in, in many ways. For example, because of things like the PRISM program in, in USA, most of the uh, big American companies have had to say yes to this. And therefore, our, our all of our communications that aren't, aren't encrypted are being monitored by the U.S. government, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You know, Snowden called it out five years ago, but it didn't go away. It just got bigger and bigger. And this is if you're using, you know, Google or Facebook or any of these things. And so what, what this has led to is threats to not just our ability to organize, but if we have an issue with the government, they're monitoring over in real time. And, and any account that we have could get shut down automatically. And they often are done right now with robots in the loop. You know, we've seen examples from this with Google and otherwise where they, they think you're a bot and they just shut you down and then it can take days to get online if you get online again at all all via that account. So what's healthier, of course, is if you can, rather than rely on a few large organizations with very centralized control, to start to spread it out more again for the sort of 
fundamental infrastructure of the internet, which is, you know, part of the fundamental infrastructure of society. And that's what Web3 is about. So Web1 was, you know, about decentralization, democracy, sharing. Web2 trended towards the silos um, simply because that's where money could be made. And Web3 is saying, let's reassert um, the decentralization of the web and the internet and beyond. And new technologies are really unlocking this, so largely the blockchain movement and, and some around um, sort of, uh, you know, P2P, um, in a sense, flaring up. But now with, you know, some new, a, a lot of new capabilities and what's nice, too, is a way to fund it. So there's actually finally a business model, not in the traditional sense, but at least a way to fund these new technologies, which can be beneficial to society. And this is basically what the blockchain movement has. Yeah. And before we get into what, you, what you're up to at Ocean and, and also Big Chain DB, a couple of zooming out a little bit. Is there something, you know, was the transition from Web 1 to Web 2.0 deterministic or was there something that could have been done in Web the way Web 1.0 was set up that would have led to a different Web 2.0? Uh, I think so. It's hard. I mean, in, in retrospect, it's always easier. But at the time, you know, I don't think any anyone saw that these issues would arise as badly. Or, but there's always a few people who would see that, this, of course. But over, broadly speaking, most people did not anticipate it to get as bad as it has become. So, you know, what, one of the things that unlocked uh, even Web 1 was the ability to make payments. And that was via crypto. So, you know, if you rewind to the early 90s, it was illegal to have crypto personally, to have asymmetric key cryptography, you know, and, and other cryptography. That was something that only the, the Department of Defense uh, could have. And but that got loosened up throughout the mid and late 90s. And that actually helped, interestingly, you know, forge being able to buy things online. Right. And uh, but there could have been stronger measures yet towards sovereign personal data. And this is sort of one of the big themes of, of Web 1 um, and this, its revival for Web 3. The idea that rather than entrusting my data in some other third party entity that might not be might not look, be looking out for me, I um, entrust it to myself. Right. Where I give permissions to others to use the data and then I revoke those as a whenever I, I, I choose. So it's much more very fine grained permissioning, um, letting others see the data on an as needed basis. And a lot of those technologies were actually available in the Web 1.0 era in the late 90s, early 2000s. And now it's that much easier to deploy things to blockchain technology and so on. So I, I think, you know, that, that that could have helped if there was a stronger push. And some of the people who were around in that first wave, People like Christopher Allen and so on, they, you know, have been pushing ever since. And, you know, they're kind of getting their day in the sun now, which makes me very happy simply because now there's a much broader movement around it and there's a way to fund this all too. So while it didn't happen in the Web 1.0 days, it, it could now. And if, let's say, you know, Larry Page or Mark Zuckerberg or, you know, whoever kings of Web 2.0 were people who've done really well for themselves because of that, movement have a transfer and centralization let's say they were listening to this conversation and they're all you know they're very smart people let's say they had the best we gave them the best argument they could possibly have or they had the best, best sort of counter response if we had to be charitable to them what would what would they say in response like what what's if you are had to argue against your, yourself or your version of history as you saw it in terms of the implications of it rather what, what do you think they'd, they'd respond well it depends how deeply they, they know blockchain so a lot of the, the sort of this series of responses that people have as they get to know blockchain more and more and more. And, you know, with Larry or Zuckerberg, I'm, I'm sure they've gotten a, a much more deeper understanding than they did a year or two ago. It's been interesting to watch their evolution, especially a lot of Zuckerberg's evolution over time. So at first people say, oh, blockchain, that's just tulips, right? Uh, the tulip revolution. And and then there's the sort of series of arguments, oh, it'll never work because it'll never scale. And they kind of go down this path bit by bit by bit. And as they realize those arguments, you know, aren't as actually much of a worry as as they think, 
then then they kind of fade away, right? So, uh, and the scale one, you know, there is a trade-off between um, the degree of decentralization, the degree of, of scale you can have, and the cons- consistency you can have, you know, can you prevent double spends, yes or no? But it's not as severe as, as one might think. Yeah, that trade-off, by the way, uh, you know, myself, I, I kind of discovered a, a couple of years ago, and then several others as well. But it, you can still, what we've seen te- with technology in the last one year, two years, the developments have shown that we can get to the promise of sort of planetary scale um, with decentralization technology. So that would have been some of the earlier arguments. The, and as, as you go farther along then, to put myself in their shoes, they'll say, well, you know, we have the networks and it's going to take a long time for decentralization to get there. So we want to help serve humanity as best as we can now. And, you know, it's, uh, uh, given that, um, you know, it, it, given that it'll take a, a while for blockchain to, to come along, we're going to just do the best that we can now. And therefore, we don't need blockchain. You know, we're doing a good job. What would and, you do if you if you were CEO of Facebook? I would tokenize Facebook. To me, it's dead obvious, right? Facebook's interests are misaligned with the interests of its community, right? It wants to make money off of the data of people. And the, the it has this constant tension of trying to get their data. And, and the people themselves might be looking for privacy or might not even understand the importance of privacy. Yet, you know, going back to the days of Ben Franklin, right? If you give up privacy or security in the face of convenience, then, you know, kind of, it's terrible for everybody, right? So I would, I would take, go down the steps to tokenize, right? And what's wonderful about this is it's a win for everybody involved. It's a win for the shareholders of Facebook and Facebook, you know, the entity itself, the employees of Facebook, as well as the community more broadly, right? So tokenize specifically is tokenizing the, the shares, like converting those to tokens, tokenizing the data. And following that up with basically structuring incentives such that as people add value to Facebook, the network, then then they get tokens for it. And this is value in terms of, you know, new features and uh, new scalability, new functionality, as well as things about uh, related to the growth, you know, more users, this yep. sort of thing. right? And, you know, I've, I have, I've actually written about this. And to me, it's going to make sense. It's sort of classic innovator's dilemma of, you know, do you cannibalize yourself or do you let others cannibalize you? But the really, really cool thing is we have a whole new tool now, which is, you know, blockchains can be used as a tool. You know, there wasn't this option before. And I can see that this is actually, this could be the case, not only for Facebook, but for, for Google and for Amazon and so on. Yeah. And, and why won't they just to entrench interests? Is it just too much? Actually, no, I, I actually, I would love to see them do it. And in fact, you know, it might become inevitable in two years, five years, 10 years. Hmm. I'm not sure. Right. And I think. The greatest challenge is that, you know, the shareholders could see a win from this, right? They get, might see a 2x, 5x jump just by going tokenized. I think the hardest thing of all is for sort of the life form of the entity itself called Facebook. You know, not Zuckerberg, not the shareholders, not, not the community around, but the entity itself. It, it will want to self-preserve as sort of as, a, as an entity. And will that entity want to morph into a network or a set of networks? That, that to me is the big question. But I, I actually think, like, I am hopeful, you know, to me, I, my, myself personally, I would go out of my way to help Facebook make that transformation sim- simply because I see that given the, the scale and scope of Facebook, then, you know, with 2 billion plus users, it's going to be faster to transform into something decentralized than to start with a fully decentralized network at zero, um, capture or not capture, but engage 2 billion users, right? It's sort of, there's a bottom-up way and a top-down way to get decentralization for the planet, sort of in a social network type fashion. And I think it's, you know, you have to go at it from both directions, right? There are some really high-quality efforts um, coming from the bottom-up too, right? Like one of the funds of Ethereum is doing something called the Kasha, for example, right? 
So there's many others that are working for various angles with, you know, you know, rating user news, news feeds and so on. So yeah, I'm totally hopeful that these leaders will see it. And they, the biggest thing they have to do is check their ego. Would you if say they can keep their ego at bay? Go would ahead. you say the same for Apple or Amazon? Uh, Amazon definitely. Amazon actually can be centralized much more readily. You know, if you think about like AWS is the most obvious, right? It's got to be yep. 50 services, S3, all these, and there's already tokenized versions of these coming along, right? For S3, for example, we've got Filecoin and C and so on. For EC2, we've got Golem, etc. So the AWS stuff, it's very obvious. But then Amazon itself is, you know, sort of all these two pizza teams, each having their own API. So imagine if um, under the hood, I mean, it sort of acts like a software as a service. Maybe there's people behind, maybe not. But now that SaaS can melt into a DAO, right? So, and every sort of SaaS in the future could melt into a DAO, a decentralized autonomous organization. So, and that can be pulling people in and yes or no, it, um, but it just isn't centralized. You know, the control is spread out. So Amazon has these, you know, scores and scores and scores of two teams. Now it's going to have scores and scores and scores of two pizza networks. And it won't be it anymore. It will be just this thing that is spread. And this could, you know, uh, Bezos gets scale, scale and scalability. And this could be sort of another path where it can, you know, achieve the, the goals of Bezos in, in, in an even more scalable way without sort of risking the future of humanity in one or a handful of people, right? Um, and for, for Apple, it's a little bit different because Apple has so few products. And that said, I think with Apple, it's all about supply chain and logistics, right? So Apple has figured out how to optimize every step along the way with just this incredible infrastructure. And how I see it is that right now it, it leverages its, uh, you know, very tight vertical integration to have very tight communication among the, the various teams sort of the ultimate expression of Coast Theorem, right? But when you have blockchain, you have not only low friction communicating data, just like, you know, all the networks have had in the past, you also have low friction communication of value, right? And that's something that's new, you know, communication of value in a way that is trustless, you know, minimizing the amount of trust you need in any agent. So one could achieve or hope to achieve anyway, there's a possibility to achieve the, the sort of tightness of integration along the whole supply chain from design to manufacturing, you know, all the different components to assembly to shipping to the consumers, all of that could be much more tightly coupled in a decentralized way compared to the traditional way if you try to do it decoupled. So we might, you know, blockchain might give us a path to have very tight supply chains yet fully decentralized compared to the only way before is with one very tightly coupled centralized organization, thanks to Coastera. Cool. So we, we talked about the problems of uh, the incentive misalignment in, in 2.0 talk about what you're what you're trying to do to change those incentives talk about what we've you know, done with blockchain db we talk about what you're doing with ocean talk about what are the solutions here yeah so what we've seen you know we started working full-time on blockchain 2013 early 2014 initially with ascribe which is an ip in the blockchain and that targeted a very specific narrow problem on purpose you know just about helping its goal was to help um, compensate artists artists creating digital art and it was tracking the provenance and uh, the trap, the provenance of of the digital artwork, you know, when it was created, and then from owner to owner to owner. And with that, we kind of uh, learned two main learnings. One was at the time the technology wasn't scalable enough, and the second thing was how you can leverage IP as a tool for good, you know, the IP laws, etc. So with the first one, with the issue of scale, um, what we really needed was something that looked, act, felt like a database, and had better scalability properties. You know, modern databases like Cassandra, MongoDB, all these. As you add more machines, they can have higher and higher capacity, higher and higher throughput, right? And with blockchain, especially at the time, that wasn't the case, right? 
So with that, that's what towards scale, this is why we built BigchainDB. So we, we took an existing database, and now it wraps MongoDB. At the time, it was also Rethink. And where Mongo has this, you know, excellent ability, as you add more machines, it has more and more capacity and throughput. So so that's actually at the heart of BigchainDB. And then we with that, we added blockchain characteristics, decentralized control. So no single entity owns the controls. Immutability. So really, really hard to undo changes. So you can have sort of transaction log of, of what happened um, that is undone. And finally, the idea of assets. So you own an asset if you have the, the private key to it. And those are the three characteristics we added on. We called it still a database. It just happened to have new characteristics. Just like back in the day, you know, as the world went from SQL to NoSQL databases, that was a new sort of characteristic, a sort of blue ocean database or graph databases, all of this, right? They're all sort of blue ocean databases. And that's how we've we've framed and developed BigchainDB. And it's gotten quite a lot more mature. You know, we first released the alpha in February of 2016. And here we are, you know, two and a half years later, and the 2.0 is out. And, you know, there there's many, many users throughout the world, and it keeps growing. And it's, you know, looking to be emerging as an essential part of the Web3 stack. And we're pretty excited about that, right? It has really fast abilities. And that's, you know, not something that sort of comes out of the box of traditional blockchains, right? So uh, at the same and at the same time, it can store uh, large amounts of data. So and of course, those go hand in hand. If you have lots of data, you want to be able to query it very quickly. And it's complementary with other systems. So you can use it um, in conjunction with systems um, for smart contracts slash processing, like Ethereum, et cetera, et cetera. So that's what BigchainDB is about. Maybe I'll stop there before we go forward and see if you have questions. Say more about the Web3 stack and where do people sort of, you know, misunderstand, where are some common misunderstandings about that and how, you know, BigchainDB fits into that? Yeah, so overall, I guess the first thing to realize is that, you know, blockchain is not one giant magical monolith that does everything, right? Just like if you look at sort of the Web2 stack for, you know, the cloud or for mobile, you don't have one thing, one piece of software that just does everything, everything. Instead, you have a bunch of components that work together, right? And even if you go to the Web 1 stack, you have, you know, the lab stack, right? Linux, Apache, MySQL, and uh, PHP back in the day. And, you know, these things together made up with these four components, you could have application with Web 2 as well, right? You know, you may, maybe you have a Web 2 stack based on, like Web 2 as in a cloud stack based on AWS, right? So like mentioned before, you might have S3 for storing blob, file blobs and EC2 for computing, et cetera, et cetera. So a similar thing for Web 3 stack, you know, the decentralized stack where at these lower levels, you have different building blocks, things like Filecoin for storage. And in this case, though, it's not run by a single company. It's it's a network out there where it's got incentives. So it's sort of this self-sustaining network that if you actually provide storage to that network and others use it, then you will get paid for it in tokens that are minted by the network, right? And it's this sort of decentralized marketplace to buy and sell storage. And same thing for compute, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so that's at the very lowest levels of the stack. And then as you go higher and higher into the stack, then it's um, sort of middleware services. So this is where I'll talk about this later, but Ocean fits in, right? So Ocean leverages um, service uh, like storage abilities, but then helps to incentivize people to make data available and to curate that data and so on. And then, you know, once you get to the higher levels of the stack, you have the applications, the, the, the dApps or dApps, decentralized applications. Um, one big difference compared to um, previous stacks, if you if you look at you know the underpinnings of the internet with the, the various layers for TCP/IP, each of those doesn't have strong incentives that are built in. They're kind of very thin protocols. You know, like this is how you speak from this machine to the next with this protocol, and even BitTorrent. You know, it's a it's a fairly thin protocol. The only thing is, it's a bit of a tit for tat in the sense of you know you can store, you can grab data as long as you 
give some data back, right? But there's no sort of um, monetary gain. It's just data itself. So that's d different than now, whereas before we had these thin protocols, whether it's the TCP IP protocols or the web protocols, now they're actually what's called fat protocols, right? And some people see that there's just sort of going to be a handful of fat protocols, like say Ethereum and maybe one or two others. I see that there's actually going to be several layers and each layer is going to be fat, as in it has incentives based on tokens, etc., that kind of build up to higher and higher levels. And so at the end of it, you know, the stuff that's facing the end user, you're going to have these applications and whatnot. And in between, it could be, you know, three or five or seven layers, maybe even more, everything from the sort of curation level down to the, the software storage layer, down to compute systems themselves. And, you know, um, even end game, ideally, the, the chips themselves and their manufacturing is all tokenized too. So sort of, and how I see things in the future, the shape of business itself will change. Everything will be tokenized to various degrees. In some cases, it, it will only make sense to have a sort of a token version of the shares, the securities. But in other cases, it will make sense to have incentives such that you can have these self-sustaining networks. And, uh, you know, this is all possible. It's not going to be in the next two years. It's going to be five years, 10 years, 20 years plus. But that's kind of where things are headed. And talk about what success looks like for BlockchainDB and, and what are bottlenecks right now? If any that are preventing that that are in the way that you need to figure out. Yeah. So well, with BigchainDB, so with BigchainDB, it's right now it's a piece of software that you can download and use, just like you can download and use MongoDB or whatever. And it doesn't have an official public network or anything. Instead, you can download it to deploy your own network. Right now, it's um, not tuned for permissionless systems. It's tuned for permissionless systems where you might have twenty or fifty different entities that are joined together and say, hey, we're gonna create a network for X for, for supply chain, for curation, whatever it is. And then they they work those entities coalesce together and and ship that network. It can work in a permissionless context if working with say Ethereum or something else and people are building systems that do that as well. So I guess it's sort of to your question of, you know, what are the bottlenecks? Right now it's you know it's it's a nice it's a nicely mature technology. People can use it. It it achieves many of the goals we set out initially. It's not quite as easy to use with, with say Ethereum or with Ledger, IBM Fabric, all these sorts of things as as we would like, but this is something that we continue to work on over time. And there's always uh, features to make it more and more scalable, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, too. So but we see right now already it's it's you know achieving the main goals of querying, scalability, um, trustlessness to to a very good degree to be usable in in the the apps of today. So it's more like a, a software evolution and really about listening to the community about you know what makes sense doing next, 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 right? And as time goes on, it will have you know better and better integration into more and more of these Web three platforms. Talk a bit about Ocean. Talk about the what, why, how. Let's get into Ocean. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So uh, with Notion, um, this comes back to, you know, sort of our history doing IP on the blockchain in the early days and, and then with BigChain about data. So it sort of took the ideas about, you know, IP, personal ownership and then personal data. And it was really us seeing this issue with, you know, the silos of Web2, right? And as I mentioned earlier in the, in the podcast, that's really an issue for society, right? People often say, you know, they don't care about privacy. The thing is, they don't care until they do, right? Until they have it taken away. It's sort of like getting your identity stolen or, or other sort of negative things. You don't worry about it until you do. And the challenge is right now, the way that we have it, it's a it's a threat to democracy itself. You know, we could be organizing a protest, but being monitored in real time and then have that shut down before we can do anything. So, you know, these are the sorts of things that drive us. And we see that we're in sort of this 1984-ish scenario without fully realizing it. You know, maybe people read about it and hear about it, but it's sort of this thing that most of society isn't thinking about and they're just sort of accepting, but it's sort of, you know, a devil's bargain, right? And 
what, what we asked in with Ocean is, is there something that we can do about this, right? Using our sort of particular backgrounds, our particular knowledge. And at the end of the day, the answer is yes. And it was coming down to realizing that at the heart of, you know, why there are these silos, it's because organizations like Facebook have figured out how to convert masses and masses of data into value via AI. So AI is sort of this engine that converts data into value, um, into shareholder value, et cetera. And so AI is sort of the linchpin of all of this. And right now, you know, because of modern AI's deep, deep learning, all of this, people have figured out how to convert huge amounts of data into more and more value. This wasn't always the case. You know, deep learning gives just much more capacity to handle more data than ever before. And, in, you know, I understood this sort of intimately because I did AI since the mid-90s, so industrially, et cetera. So we said, what if we created a platform that could make it much more straightforward to deploy AI decentralized and in particular really, really zoom in on, on the data aspect? Could we incentivize people to make data available on their own terms to keep it as private as they like, but at the same time incentivize sharing, sharing whether it's free for the commons or paid? And it's really on, on the terms of the, the person creating the data, you know, the data emanating from you as a person or, or from a business creating the data, et cetera. So really, Ocean is a substrate to incentivize away from data silos and towards a data commons and an explosion of data marketplaces, all for use by AIs. So that's what Ocean is about. And then under the hood, you know, we've designed um, this set of incentives to make that happen. So we see it, you know, the, the main users we see, it's sort of a multi-sided platform. The main users we see are data scientists, right, who are constructing AI models. And now they'll have, be able to have a way to do that where they never ever need to see the data themselves. It can always stay in the hands of the data owner. It can stay encrypted and people can build their models. Or there's various flows. You know, you can have a mix and match of centralized and decentralized depending on the sort of flow you want. So at the end of the day, it's, it's for data scientists building and deploying their models for real world usage from everything from self-driving cars to health. And then, of course, besides that, Ocean has a network of people providing the data. It has a network of people providing data storage and a network of people providing uh, compute on that data. And in itself is not doing any of those. It's actually incentivizing other networks, other best-in-class networks to join in to the Ocean Network to have that, uh, whether it's for, for compute, such as in Golem or otherwise, or for data storage or otherwise, right? And then sort of on top of all this, it adds a, a curation angle such that the best-in-class networks and data and so on kind of bubble to the top more readily. It's, it, it aids discoverability because we do see that, you know, there won't be just a thousand or ten thousand data sets there will be a hundred thousand a million you know ten million data sets out there and uh, we want to aid in the process of discovery and we're doing that via a creation angle um, that leverages staking so people putting their money where their mouth is so, so once again sort of summarize it ocean is a decentralized substrate for ai data and services awesome and one thing I, I like to a ask people building crypto projects is paint sort of a, a bit of a picture for, for my friends in New Jersey, for my friends in Detroit, who are some of whom are, are not as up on blockchain nor AI. How, how will this affect their, their lives on a day to day basis? Paint, paint, paint a picture or paint an example. For sure. So it, it's about the end user applications, right? So um, what, what are the things that right now AI isn't quite able to accomplish so readily or yet Ocean can make a difference on? And it comes down to like what happens to your AI systems when they have 100x more data, 1,000x more data, and are decentralized, right? So, you know, the, one of the leading examples we like to talk about is autonomous driving. Right now, we have self-driving car technology, 
but it's not quite accurate enough to ship and deploy in a broad, broad scale, right? You know, we've got these deep learning neural networks, et cetera, that, that can drive the cars, but the accident rate is still higher than that of humans, mostly across the board, right? And we have, there's all the, the big automakers um, from the past, the, the Toyota researchers, the Toyotas of the world, the Daimlers of the world, and so on, that are saying, okay, you know, we've got this AI, but it's not good enough yet. We just need more data. And, you know, Rand did a study where they, they, they showed that 5 billion miles driven is needed. And this is, you know, not counting the simulated miles and miles driven is needed. And then the automakers turned around and like, oh, it's going to take us 10 years, 20 years to get that data. But but then they started asking, what if we pooled their data, right, our driving data, in order for each automaker to start shipping self-driving cars a lot, lot sooner, right? Rather than being constrained by the data, it's only about uh, the regulation and and so on. So so how is that possible? They're, they're big enterprises, they're big corporations. They're not. It's not like they're all going to hug us in Kumbaya and just pool their data. But what if there was a marketplace or a set of marketplaces that no single one of them controlled that they could use to pool their data, buying and selling from each other, right? That's what Ocean incentivizes for. And it's designed explicitly with that use case. You know, we've been working with many of the big automakers through uh, a new initiative called Mobi on exactly this, right? So so then basically it helps to unlock self-driving cars. And going back to your question then of, you know, the friend in New Jersey or for myself, you know, I'm from rural Canada, so my friend's in rural Canada. And, you know, how does this affect them? And there's near-term things like it help, helps mobility, you know, like a 90-year-old grandmother in, you know, small town Saskatchewan where there's not even any taxis. And, and how do they get around when they they can't drive anymore, right? So it will enhance their personal mobility, right? Or in rural Saskatchewan also, there's a lot of times where you simply don't have a, a, a way to get around. Maybe you've, you know, had maybe one too many drinks at the bar or something like that. And there's no taxis around all that. So this is sort of a near-term thing. But medium-term, I also see that once you have autonomous vehicles, then it makes it, the, the next logical step is what if these vehicles can each, each vehicle can be its own corporation and can sort of be self-owning, right? But uh, with that, the corporation is once this car sort of pays for itself, what if it started giving all of its surplus to a pot, a pot for sort of spread the wealth to spread the gains such that, you know, maybe it's there, there are jobs going away because of, you know, losing trucking jobs and so on. But there are jobs that are then regained, or at least there's new ways to, to, to feed your families through these these pots of sort of basic income, right? And so that, that's an example. You know, radical changes all the way in a sense. But at the same time, it's keeping an eye towards, you know, people out there in, you know, more remote areas or more mundane things, right? And AI can sort of point to this level of abundance if we let it, right? If we're not careful, AI will stay centralized and uh, most of the value will accrue, uh, you know, another billion for people who have managed to figure out how to keep this centralized and having value to accrue to them. But if we do it right, then these, you know, massive gains that's uh, inefficiency that society gets can be spread across society so that all society can reap the rewards and we can trend towards abundance. And I just gave this example of, you know, the abundance from a given car can go towards a, a universal basic income pot, but there's a lot of other examples too. And that's really the main thing, right? Rather than letting the wealth accumulate to just mm-hmm. a very small handful, let's figure out technology now and lock it open uh, and lock it so that that wealth keep, um, spreads more and more. And let's talk more about the intersection between blockchain and AI because, you know, you've been doing AI research, you know, almost 20 years ago for a long time and you've been in blockchain since the beginning. So not that many people have, have more insight than you do given your your, your experience in it. And, and, you, and you wrote a, a few posts. What were you trying to achieve in the post, in, the, in those posts? And what do you think people most misunderstand at the intersection of, of blockchain and AI? What are you most excited about? Yeah. So, 
So probably the thing that people mo most misunderstand is, you know, starting in, uh, say, a couple years ago, AI started to hit a new hype cycle, right? It's had waves ever since the 50s, right? Waves of hype and NAI winters and, and so on. And and then blockchain sort of hit it, started hitting mainstream last year, right? So, of course, when you have two technologies that have a lot of hype around them, when they see people see, see those together, most people, like 90% plus, immediately shut down. They're like, this is just, you know, full hype, you know, buzzword mania, all that. I'm like, well, yes, both of these have hype, but there are ways that they interact that really matter, right? And by the way, you know, I've been doing AI since the AI winter and blockchain since before it was a thing. So clearly I'm not in it for the hype, right? And so, so that's one thing you, a lot of people have to get past realizing that there are, are, are really strong interactions and sort of a, a couple of very top level ways to think about it is AI is centralizing tendencies because of the data and blockchain is decentralizing tendencies just naturally. Mm -hmm. And so one can counteract the other. So that's, that's sort of one high, high level thing. Um, another one is that of all the different technologies out there, AI and blockchain are probably the two most ethically infused, where whenever you deploy an AI system, you are making ethical judgment calls all the time. Same thing with blockchain. And and then, you know, way more so when you have both together. So that's sort of like the highest level where, you know, there, there's hype and you have to get past that. And there's also a super double-edged sword with both, an extremely double-edged sword when you have them together. So that's sort of to help paint the picture. Then, you know, sort of drilling into the interactions there's, you know, what I see as the most important towards the decentralizing of the centralization, which is about the data itself. And we've talked about that with Ocean, right? Where, you know, AI loves data. Therefore, there's incentives to get more data because once you have more data, you can um, sell more ads, etc. And blockchain can help to decentralize this and, and spread the wealth and the control of this data throughout the community. <laughs> so that's one. There's a lot of other more mundane ones and there's actually also so we can we'll talk I'll talk a little bit about some of the mundane more mundane ones are still interesting as well as some of the more extreme stuff so the more mundane stuff a lot of it comes down to provenance so you know right now if you are chief data officer inside a company you're asking where did my data sets come from if we use this in the wrong way will 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 we be liable you know now with GDPR the the general data protection rights and regulations that have come out of Europe, you know, are we going to get fined because we're handling people's personally identifiable information incorrectly, right? All of this. So there's a whole cast of issues around managing data. It's very, very hard for them to kind of track what's going on with the data in an organization. And so imagine if you had a way, even within your organization, to simply track the provenance of the data much more readily in, in the sort of this cryptographically verifiable way, right? Even within that one company, that can be very, very valuable because then you can know the origins of the data. And also not just a given data set, but when it was cleaned going from A to B, when multiple data sets were merged together and trained to make a neural network, and then when that neural network were simulated, et cetera, et cetera, right? So there's quite a few variants of that, as well as the models themselves, right? If that if that model gets sold, what do you do with it? You know, you can buy and sell the, the, the models themselves and predictions from the models and so on, right? So once you have, see so you have the provenance that's useful within a company, but also externally, you can ha ha um, be buying and selling the models themselves, et cetera. So there's, there's a lot of things kind of on that angle on the mundane to help, you know, make business a bit more efficient today to help consumer use cases a bit better, a bit better. And maybe I'll pause there, seeing a few questions, and then we can talk about the sort of the more extreme stuff. No, let's go into the more extreme stuff. <laughs> All right. So the more extreme stuff is really ours, right? And I guess I talked about this a bit in your previous podcast, but it's this idea that once you have agents, think like artificial general intelligence type agents. And these are really feedback control systems. You know, they could be really dumb. They could be like an ant or 10,000 ants running around on a blockchain. But now, since they're on a blockchain, you can't turn them off, right? Or at least you can't turn them off until, you know, you hard fork or something, right? 
And so they're running around sort of this code that is executing and each of them can have their own wallet, right? So they can accumulate wealth. So so what does that you know look like, right? Overall, you have another way to think about this just to help paint the picture. You know, we have computer viruses right now when, you know, when a hacker unleashes, unleashes a computer virus, it kind of spreads, right? By making a copy of itself in the next computer, the next computer, the next computer, right? And generally they're, they're kind of bad, right? They're generally, I've never seen a good computer virus. They're either neutral or, or bad as in, you know, wrecking your data, deleting your data, holding you hostage, whatever. And, but imagine if you had sort of something, uh, sort of like a virus, but it was benevolent. It was good. It could be programmed to do, you know, whatever you ask it to do, but positive things and it can, and accumulate its own wealth. And, you know, the example that I, I gave you in your previous podcast was um, a very straightforward one, but really it's, you know, this agent that's living on a blockchain that can automatically create its own art, you know, using genetic programming or deep learning or, or whatever. There's quite a few ways. And then it would uh, sell that art and use that to accumulate more wealth. And with that um, new wealth, it would generate more art yet, maybe 10x more art. And then over time, it could get, you know, wealthier and wealthier, right? So it could start with, you know, 10 bucks worth of compute, but then that would grow in, and sell it for you know, to convert that art, make $100, and then do the a, a cycle again, you know, create art, sell it, then you go to $1,000 and so on, and you end up with the world's first AI millionaire, right? And you might say, well, yeah, but that doesn't have any rights. And my answer to that would be, well, that you, you can actually set it up to have rights without any laws changing. And, and it's because you can set up, and the, the key to that is corporations, right? You know, corporations are people too, thanks to laws that, you know, were passed hundreds of years ago. And it's sort of a concept throughout the world, the idea of a corporation. And in some countries, notably in Switzerland, the canton of Zug, as well as other countries are doing this, you can actually have a corporation that doesn't have any people attached. And they did this for the DAO, the sort of decentralized autonomous organization that was launched about two years ago, where they actually set up a corporation. They gave control of that corporation to a smart contract running on Ethereum, and then they removed all the people. So then there was this DAO running around. In its case, it, it sort of acted like an investment vehicle and was doing its thing. But imagine where you can have an AI that is, you know, an AI DAO that's attached to a corporation and you remove all the people. Now you've got an AI running around. It's got rights the way that a corporation has rights. And it can do its thing, right? It can accumulate wealth. It can hire and fire. It can even, you know, do the human things simply by, by contracting the zote, you know, mechanical Turk style, right? So uh, that's kind of, you know, some things that are possible. And this leads to very positive potential outcomes as well as very negative potential. So I'm curious, uh, and thank you for, for outlining that. I'm curious how you, you, you talked about how, you know, when you work with AI and when you work with blockchain individually, you know, sort of a lot of ethical questions come up. And when you work with them together, you know, extreme ethical questions come up. I'm curious how you personally, you know, working at the intersection of both have honed, you know, how you think about honing your sort of ethical understanding and how you think about improving the way you approach approach the ethics of these sort of you know very abstract and very big and important and naughty you know challenges yeah so i think you know there's there's a few things first of all to raise awareness throughout the broader community i, I know i don't have um, many of the answers yet and i'm hoping that by raising awareness and spreading the the concerns that collectively as a community, we can we can figure out good answers to this before it becomes a real problem, right? And make no mistake, right? We have something sort of the, the power of, you know, splitting the atom in front of us. And we can either go down the route of, you know, good power, like nuclear power or the bomb or both, right? And hopefully we end up with, you know, the good side. And, you know, when scientists found that they split the atom, they actually met and talked about it and tried to figure out what could be done. 
Same thing in the early days of a few examples with uh, in the world of biology and DNA and so on, right? So there have been various uh, meetings around that. And I, right now, there are conversations that, you know, people in the blockchain and AI community are having about things like this. You know, how, how do we address this? So the, the first thing is knowing that it's not just me, but it's actually a whole community and raising awareness to the broader world, but also trying to come up with pragmatic solutions or at least heuristics to, you know, bias towards positive and away from the negative. And then for myself, right, it is about continually reading and learning and so on. Everything from, you know, classic books on philosophy and ethics and so on to sci-fi on, you know, various scenarios that, that might happen depending on the types of AIs that you have, right? And, you know, really understanding the capabilities of the machines of today and how they might extrapolate or even better, starting with, you know, the technologies 30 years from now and interpolating towards them for the good. So it's all of these. Uh, I think also, you know, things like the art out, it does come down to, uh, you know, simply building these and then putting these out there and that helps to spread the word. And like in our last podcast, Simon had talked about building autonomous and uh, which is this, you know, art style that he was talking out for people to build. That's awesome, right? Because it, it helps to get the word out and helps to raise awareness and has people ask these questions. And remember too, sort of, I guess, another thing that people say, ah, oh, well, you know, you shouldn't worry because, you know, it's going to be forever for the AIs to wake up if they ever wake up at all. And I, I say, well, yes, that will be a long time, but we don't need smart AIs to wake up, right? It can be a, dump, a bunch of super stupid, you know, ant-level intelligent agents that start interacting together, and we have emergent intelligence. And, you know, from the AI community, we know this because there is, you know, research on swarm systems going back to at least the early 90s and some even earlier stuff before, right? So it's it's... It's easy to say, you know, this sounds impossible. We're going to stick our head on sand and ignore it. But I think we have to be uh, pragmatic about what possible answers out there might be. Some of the answers that, you know, potential answers are also not ones that people like to hear about because they, they are more about, you know, upgrading the sort of substrate of our minds, right? But, and that sounds like really sci-fi and right now it is. But we'll see, you know, maybe there's answers that much more reconcile, um, with sort of the main, mainstream world that are palatable. We'll see. Yeah. There's a bunch I want to get to. So talk a little bit about the Stuart Brand paradox and how you're trying to resolve it. Yeah, sure. So Stuart Brand, a uh, long time ago in the days of the, the whole Earth catalog, talked about how information wants to be free and information also wants to be expensive. And the free part is due to the physics of bits, right? Um, you can copy a bit, you can send it around the world for essentially free. You know, make a million copies, make a billion copies, it doesn't matter, right? The expensive part is the people creating the information uh, need a way to feed their family, right? So how do you resolve that? And we've seen this sort of back and forth tension on the, on this problem, you know, decade after decade with, you know, what's usually happening in the end is the middleman is taking a lot of the money too. But that's sort of an aside. But overall, you know, artists, you know, creating music or digital art or writing books or whatever, how do they make a living from it, right? And ideally, you don't just have the top 1% able to make a living, but the top 10%, top 50%, maybe even everyone, right? being able to feed their family from just practicing their art and, you know, sort of opening the eyes of others. And, you know, more recently, people have uh, keep talking about this and writing about it. Cory Doctorow wrote a book about it, a nonfiction in this case, um, a few years ago, where, you know, part of the answer was, well, given that the physics of bits can't be tampered with, you need to find other ways. You need to play concerts. You need to sell T-shirts, all of that. And that's, a, a you know, a, 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 some nice ideas, but it's not wholly satisfying. You know, if I'm a, um, a person who really excels, at just creating that art itself, then why can't I get, and people find value in it, utility in it, then it would be ideal if I could get paid directly, right? 
and you know there's some artists you know like take avici you know all right but he was amazing at creating art but had nearly mental breakdowns every time he performed right so there's some artists where it's really a constraint for them to actually get out get out and it's much better if they can just focus on creating their work so how do you resolve this paradox right how do you acknowledge that bits want to be copied, 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 and at the same time, find a way for artists to, to feed their families and more broadly, you know, reward the creative spirit of humans. And the answer, or at least an, a new answer, is, is the following. Within blockchain networks, take Bitcoin, for example, right? I'll just summarize the answer. The answer is that the blockchain networks mint their own money and we can pay the artist. So I'll, I'll unpack this. So with, with Bitcoin, Bitcoin, Bitcoin network, at the heart of what Bitcoin is trying to do, it's trying to maximize it's security. That is to minimize the chance that someone can undo its transaction log. You know, the, the log of who owns what Bitcoin, who sent what Bitcoin to what other person and so on and so forth. And it's trying to make that, you know, very, very hard to undo to withstand attacks from, you know, big banks or super hackers, et cetera, et cetera. And how does that do that? Well, it defines security as hash rate. And in, in this case, that, you know, it has a design to support that. And then it rewards you every time you contribute hash rate to the network. So if I'm contributing to 10% uh, 10 of the hash rate to the overall network, then at each block reward cycle of Bitcoin, I can expect to get 10% of the rewards that Bitcoin is, is printing out. In the case of Bitcoin, it's every 10 minutes, it prints out 12.5 Bitcoins. And if I'm contributing 10% hash, hash rate, then I can expect 1.25 Bitcoins every 10 minutes. Now, of course, it's lumpy. You know, Usually, I'm only going to get you know 12.5 Bitcoins every 10th cycle, right? But overall, the expected gains are 1.25 Bitcoins. And if you want to smooth that out, you just join a mining pool level above, right? So that's what Bitcoin does. It's minting Bitcoins in order to pay people for the value that they're adding to the network. In the case of Bitcoin, security. We can do the same thing for creative output. So when people have creative output, whether it's a song or a piece of art or some writing, we can pay them for that writing, right? Or that song, et cetera. How? When I say we, I mean the network. So when, when that person contributes a song to the network, they have a, an expectation of getting paid. How much do they get paid? Well, in the case of Ocean, it's actually related to how much you stake and the popularity, how much your, your song is getting listened to, et cetera, getting downloaded, getting used. So to be precise, if I'm a creator of a, a song, if I write and perform a song, say, then I put that into the Ocean network. And I stake on it. It's going to be very cheap to get a lot of stake early on because I'm the first person going in. And then when other people download it, use it, then I'm getting rewards. So in this case, it's sort of like the mining rewards of Bitcoin. It's sort of proof of work. But now the work that I'm doing is basically the, the serving up that song when asked. And because I was the first in, you know, I created the song, then I'm getting the most rewards because I had a high stake. Right. If, and, and this also incentivizes referral. You know, if someone else says, Oh, wow, the song is great. Trent. Good job. Good job. And by the way, I'm a terrible musician. So. It would not be my song. But if someone else really loves that, then, then they, they could actually also stake on it and serve it up when it asks too. And they have to pay more to get the same stake, you know, because they're sort of first mover advantage here. But then they can get paid too. So we actually have natural incentives for referrers as well, right? And this works for, for music and for text and for data itself, right? And this is an example for Ocean. You know, there's other networks out there emerging. You know, Steamit has been out there for a couple of years and it's really focusing on writing. And it has shown sort of some mechanics around this too. And Ocean sort of makes it pretty tight and elegant and kind of general around, you know, broad classes of data, right? But at the end of the day, what this resolves the this paradox, this two of brand paradox. Information wants to be free, it also wants to be expensive, because uh, at the end of the day, the, the artists are getting compensated 
you know, they can view their values from, from the tokens that that network is printing, right? Yep. So I want to be sensitive to time, but I also want to get into a couple of topics. So I'm going to say a couple of topics that I want you to get into whatever you find interesting. And we talked about it a little bit before the show. One is the AI commons. The other is unlocking the machine-to-machine economy. And the other is nature. Sure. So let's you know, just cycle through those very quickly, maybe. And then you know, if you have questions. So the AI commons is is a fledgling effort coming out of some work. The guy who runs AI Prize, Amir Banafatami, is working with one of the leaders of AI, Stuart Russell, and some other AI leaders as well, as well as us, to basically help to democratize AI and in particular focusing on on the data aspect and solving problems. So it sort of emerged from some, a, 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 a conference series called AI for Good, where there's dozens of UN agencies as well as government officials and so on, all you know trying to address the UN's 17 sustainable development goals, things like eliminating, eliminating poverty, eliminating hunger and so on. These sort of goals that the UN has set for themselves over the next while. And very ambitious goals, but, you know, it means that you can define the word good very precisely for this context, right? So you can say, okay, this AI is doing good if it's helping towards one of these 17 sustainable development goals, SPDs. And and then basically what the AI commons is, is saying, okay, well, one way to help catalyze AI for good is by having this this pool of of AI resources there, data, problems, compute, etc., that anyone can access, anyone can use and target towards solving these 17 SGDs, right? So that's what AI Commons is about. It's really, it's a nonprofit organization that is set up to help catalyze this, leveraging the decentralized AI data and services infrastructure of of Ocean under the hood towards basically the common good, right? So that's AI Commons. It's in its its fledgling state right now, but I see that it's going to, you know, it could have a big impact as time goes on, right? And it's designed to be complementary to other efforts out there too, right? There's other, you know, really nice efforts for AI for good out there or towards the SGDs, and it's just very complimentary. Cool. The machine-to-machine economy. Yeah, so machine-to-machine economy and and the Nature 2.0, like, I'll talk, I'll segue from one to the other. So the machine-to-machine economy, you know, a lot of visionary um, sort of people from the energy space and otherwise have been talking with us for a while, IoT as well. So people like Karsten Stoker, J.P. Dumernick from Nexus and so on. And what they're envisioning is, you know, in the near term, it's sort of like if you are driving along with your self-driving car, or even just your regular car, electric though, and you come up to a charging station, rather than you having to insert your credit card and all that, it's more like your car has its own wallet, and it talks to the charging station, which also has its own wallet, you know, blockchain wallet, and and then they just exchange value uh, very straightforward. Um, you don't even have to be playing a role, right? And But then imagine this generalizes. Now imagine that the, the car itself is self-driving and self-owning, right? So it owns itself, and, and there's value to that because then you know, the Ubers of the world or yourself or whatever don't need to ha- have that capital outlay. It's sort of these, you know, services that are being offered to the world by the machines that own them, right? So imagine that the, the car is self-owned and imagine that this grid of block charging stations are also self-owned. Uh, you know, they're a, a DAO. They're, and so now you have this, this self-driving, self-owning car that pulls up, maybe carrying you inside, pulls up to the charging station. And once again, they exchange, you know, electricity goes in one direction to car uh, charge and the other direction goes some payments to pay for it. And and that happens, but it's simply between two machines, right? And that's a very physical, tangible example, but it actually greatly simplifies things compared to needing humans in the loop for all of this, right? Part of the reason this, you know, there's been a big push from the energy sector is in many places in the world, including Europe, the energy sector is trying to deregulate and to sort of essentially decentralize. But they haven't had appropriate technology um, until recently when, you know, blockchain came to prominence. 
now there's actually a path to do this that says, oh, wow, you know, like now we have a way that makes it much, much easier to have people gathering energy, putting that on the grid and, and getting paid for it without some sort of central computer that handles this. Instead, you know, you can just have a solar panel that is connected to some, say, Ethereum node that is putting this onto the grid and then getting paid for proof of energy, for example, right? And there's projects that are focusing on exactly stuff like that, such as Verb. So that's a, sort of another example. And But imagine, you know, once we have uh, several of these, you know, deployed sort of point-wise for various business applications from, you know, self-driving, self-owning cars and trucks and charging stations and roads and energy, bit by bit by bit, you know, there's also going to be sort of higher level integrations where there's an incentive to connect these systems together. And they're all sort of, each of them individually is providing a service to humans, right? And collectively, though, as more and more of these emerge, it's sort of a service to humanity in the same way that, you know, right now we breathe air and we get sunlight and we stand on soil. All of these are services to humanity as part of nature and call it nature 1.0, right? Uh, So nature 2.0 is basically building on top of this nature 1.0. You know, nature 1.0 is is earth and wind and soil. Nature 2.0 adds silicon and steel and both of them to get together. Start helping to build up this sort of cradle of civilization upon, you know, which humans can live. And of course, we're part of nature too. Yeah. You know, I love this one quote you had. I'm not sure if it was in that piece or one of the other pieces, but you said, here's a broader question that you wanted to ask. How can we transition from a mentality of scarcity, zero sum game of I win, you lose to one of abundance, a positive sum game where everyone wins? Yes, exactly. And I, I think it really is possible. And, you know, there's many questions, but overall, well, you, you need, you know, a substrate to help to spread wealth and sort of in the near term, such that, you know, all the gains don't go to just a small number of players, as we're kind of seeing with Web2. But then beyond that, you know, as we transition to, to robots and AIs, you know, a big concern is that, you know, if AIs end up with all the jobs and make no mistake, you know, they're not t- just taking the blue collar jobs. You know, I did my PhD on creative AI, so, you know, they could be taking the, a lot of those jobs, too. What do we do, right? Are we going to all end up jobless and then, you know, hungry? And my view is that rather than you know, just rationalizing, saying, oh, well, we'll just create jobs faster and hope and pray and hope and pray that we do. Instead, the answer is to to say, well, let's leverage uh, these new technologies that can actually uh, feed into sort of a nature 2.0 substrate and it's in particular universal basic income. And this is what comes back to the example I gave before of when you have self-driving cell phone cars, once they've kind of paid for themselves, they could feed into a universal basic income pot, right? And I, I have to thank J.P. Dornick for this idea. I think it's a wonderful idea. It's the best idea I've seen yet for sort of getting money into a UBI system. And of course, once you, once it's in that system, blockchains make it really easy to distribute, right? You have some sort of proof of human. It doesn't have to be perfect, but sort of proof of human, unique human, such that, you know, every time money comes in, it gets um, paid out to every system, every human that's registered in that system, right? $100 goes in, there's 100 humans, then every human immediately gets a dollar, right? A billion humans are in there, great. They all get, you know, it's money come in divided by a billion. And this is kind of where I see that we head. And, and then it's actually more, much more straightforward to embrace the, this future where the, the AIs and the bots around and the machines around us help to sort of cradle humanity. And it allows each of us as humans to not just focus on getting by, but, but to learning and to self-actualizing, right? To being whatever it is that we would love to be. And each person can have their own idea of that, right? If some people's idea of self-actualizing is, you know, playing Nintendo in their own basement, so be it. If other people want to, you know, design rocket ships and shoot for the stars, wonderful, right? And it's, it's sort of to each his own, and that's okay. 
But the key thing is, you know, we need to design a future where we aren't just worried about feeding our families. Right, hundred percent. Gearing towards a, cl- a close a little bit, let's let's get back to Ocean in terms of draw out a little bit of some of the use case or applications we're seeing. You already mentioned some with you know autonomous cars earlier in conversation. You mentioned uh, you know before the podcast, you mentioned one about healthcare. Draw out a little bit of some of the use cases we're already seeing right now for Plan to see soon. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So it comes down to you know those few characteristics that might say, hey, this could be interesting. So one of them is just imagine if you had 10x, 100x, 1,000x more data. Would that make a difference to your application if you're a data scientist, right? Another, And I'll, I'll give as an example for that one, healthcare is another great example, right? Where right now, let's say you're trying to make a model that predicts whether or not you have lung cancer, right? And that data is usually built from a model of, say, you know, 10,000 patients at some hospital. Why not more hospitals? Because of privacy reasons, right? There's very, very strong privacy laws, especially in places like Germany where, you know, medical data cannot leave German soil if it's in German hospitals, right? But what if you could build a model where that da- the data doesn't need to leave the German hospital, where it can even stay encrypted, but you can make a, a model from it, right? A model that does sort of federated learning across each hospital in Germany as well as hospitals throughout the globe. Suddenly you have 100x, 1,000x more data. So instead of just 10,000 patients, you have 10 million patients. Now you can make a model that's that much more accurate. And you can detect cancer, say, that much earlier. And with cancer, it's it's a great example where, the early, you know, it makes a huge difference how early you can detect cancer. It's the difference between life or death, right? So in this case, you know, Ocean promises to help detect disease way earlier and therefore basically I'll, I'll save a lot of lives in the near term, right? And, uh, you know, the self-driving car part, too, it isn't just mobility. It's also saving lives, right? Rather than just hitting the bar of just as safe as humans, what if self-driving cars were 100x? A thousand X safer than humans. I think we can get there, right? So that's one example where it's just way more data. Mm-hmm. Another one is the privacy preserving feature, right? And I guess I hinted at this with, with the hospital example, but in general, if now, if, if you can't build a model simply because the people you want to build the model from, you know, the supplier of the data, they simply can't provide that data because of privacy reasons. Well, now there's a new way, right? where you never ever see the data, your model is built, and you never ever even see the model, it's living on a decentralized network, encrypted, and all you can do is query the model, right? And and maybe the person that has the data itself is also controlling the model itself, right? So they basically give permissions out to give queries against the model that they control, right? And this could be for healthcare, but it could also be for, you know, going back to the, the Facebook examples before, maybe targeted ads, right? What if I am controlling a neural network model that's built on me, and it's for targeting ads. Now I get to choose whether or not that's deployed, where it's deployed, and so on, right? And this can feed into particular business models. You know, there was this long-standing idea that, you know, if ads are relevant enough, we might not see them as ads anymore. And, you know, in some cases, I think we're starting to get there, right? You know, Facebook, sorry, Amazon gives excellent recommendations for books I read. Maybe I read too many books. <laughs> so, But that's that's an example there. So this is a second example. Maybe a third example that's more broad is I, I talked before about tokenizing the enterprise and how I see that actually over time, every existing business, whether it's a, an S&P 500 business, you know, publicly traded or whether it's it's a, a small or medium-sized enterprise. I think all of these over time are going to get tokenized to various extents, right? Whether it's just, you know, having the, their shares living in the blockchain to something with, with full-on incentives. And and with that, for each of them, uh, if you're going beyond the the tokenizing the shares, then the next step actually is tokenizing the data, right? So I see that Ocean can be extremely beneficial to, to companies that, you know, as they go down this path of tokenizing, then tokenizing the data is going to be really critical and an ocean can be there to help, right? And even for Facebook itself, right? I see that, you know, it will be helpful there for Facebook, for Google, for all of this, right? 
And and this is, is a, a win for the community because, you know, the, the ocean tokens themselves are spread very broadly in the community. And it's really about, you know, spreading control, spreading and spreading the wealth. Totally. On that note, Trent, this has been a fantastic episode. Where can people find you online and what should people stay tuned for all things ocean? Where can they follow along? Sure. So to find me online on Twitter, I'm TrentMC0, the digit zero. And I have a personal site, Trent.st. TrentMC0 is also my medium handle. So you'll see a lot of my writings there. And my personal site points to my writings, it points to my Twitter, it points to different talks. And then for, for Ocean and Big Chain TV, uh, you can find more about Ocean at oceanprotocol.com and Big Chain TV at bigchaindb.com. So yeah, that's, that's the way to find out. And each of those, of course, has their own blogs too. So there's people that are blogging from, from the Ocean and Big Chain teams besides me. So, so lots of good stuff coming up from both teams, right? Yeah, that's how you learn more. And a last question that's sort of a bonus for talented engineers and entrepreneurs who, who want to, you know, build something in the space beyond, you know, besides working at, you know, come joining you at Ocean and Big Chain DB. What's your sort of one request for a project of a space where you want someone to build a, a project in that, that is underserved right now? That's underserved. Hmm. I actually think like, while there's sort of an explosion of ICOs and projects, only a fraction of those are mission-driven. So, you know, once you sort of filter away the projects that aren't mission-driven towards, you know, like really trying to help build, you know, public utility networks for the world, then there's actually a lot more openings again, in a sense. Things that are underserved, maybe everywhere, in a sense, you know, I, I think it's really healthy to have people like ex- exploring across the board, right? There, you know, I would have said the sort of blockchain for good stuff is underserved a year ago. It's starting to get a bit more mature, but there's still a lot more space. Also, I think what's underserved is the balance between people trying to make money from this versus people trying to do this just, you know, for humanity, right? And, you know, I, I kind of bristle whenever I, whenever I hear, you know, what's the business model of what you're doing? Because that's actually not the point, right? There, there are ways to, you know, feed yourself and to even do well working in the blockchain space, even doing stuff for good, but that shouldn't be the goal. Right. It should be sort of a, a happy. So I would say just that, you know, there's a lot of work being done in infrastructure. There's some work being done in, in the D apps. I think now that the infrastructure is starting to mature and, you know, we're starting to have more and more scale, then a lot more D apps that are easy to use can be really helpful, especially bringing in, you know, existing network effects. So like I would love to see all these existing Web2 companies tokenize and decentralize, you know, with, with to me that 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 hasn't happened yet. And, you know, it would make me uh, really happy to see, right, rather than sort of new crops of Web2 companies popping up trying to make, you know, money as sort of centralized marketplaces and so on, you know. So there, there's tools, you know, to address innovators' dilemma, and that is tokenized and decentralized. So I guess, yeah, to answer your question, I've arrived at a very precise answer. Um, the answer place is tokenizing the existing businesses. On that note, Trent, it's been a pleasure. Thanks so much for coming on. Thank, Thank you very much. much.